0: You're listening to Now I've Heard Everything: Interviews from the 80s, 90s, and 2000s with Voices from the Past.
1: Some characters I'm very eager to get killed off, and I and I enjoy their deaths a lot, you know. Um, and and from time to time, you'll kill somebody, and then you'll read it later, and you think, no, it wasn't bad enough, and you go go back and give them a worse death.
2: Author Michael Crichton. Today on Now I've Heard Everything, I'm Bill Thompson. He earned a medical degree from Harvard, but Michael Crichton decided to become a writer instead. I have to tell you, as a reader, I'm glad he did. I'm sure he would have made a fine doctor, but some of his books are absolutely stunning. Now, I had read many of Michael Crichton's books, and of course I enjoyed the movie The Andromeda Strain, based on one of those books, but I had never met Michael Crichton until 1990, when I interviewed him for the newest novel that he had written, this fantastical science-based story about... Cloning dinosaurs using their DNA found in mosquitoes trapped in amber or something like that. Now, of course, after this interview, Jurassic Park went on to become a huge motion picture with Sam Neill and Laura Dern and Jeff Goldblum. We talked about it in the interview you're about to hear, and we till you to hear what Michael Crichton's ideas are about what the movie's going to be like. So here now, from 1990, Michael Crichton.
0: One of the reviews that I read said this is the best dinosaur story ever <laughs> sort of odd
1: praise isn't it <laughs> yeah uh,
0: it, it struck me i mean i know what they meant because I, I, I think it's a terrific story too but it struck me as saying that like, that's the best story about western alaskan timber wolves i've ever read mm-hmm. yeah, <laughs> you know, but, but it is it, it it's one of those stories that cries out why didn't somebody think of this before this is such a great idea how did this idea come to you
1: Well, it was um, uh, slowly, I think, the answer. In the early 80s, I became aware that there was some speculation about cloning dinosaurs and and the the sort of amusing speculation that scientists entertained themselves with from time to time. And by the middle 80s, there were even some ideas about how exactly it might be done in terms of getting the the DNA from insects in amber. And so I, I just sort of kept track of all this and um eventually wrote the book the um the idea of di- doing a dinosaur book is very pleasurable you know i mean it's a it's it's kind of about as much fun as something can be
0: well you know the day after uh, um i finished your book i went and saw was a 3 men and a little lady i guess and they're putting her to sleep and the sheets and the pillowcases are all done up in dinosaurs And it occurred to me, maybe one reason we love, especially kids, love dinosaurs so much is because they're so remote and distant, and they can't possibly hurt us now.
1: Yes, I think I think there is something to that. I mean, there's. um, I'm I'm not exactly sure why kids like them, but um, I think it has something to do with the largeness of them, the uh, enormous size, and I think it has something also to do with the strangeness of the names. You know, I, I used to watch. Little girls of, of three and four go, Stegosaurus, Triceratops, you know, and you could see there was some kind of pleasure in just saying the names. And I, and I think also that the fact that they are distant makes them um, sort of fantasy creatures. I mean, you can think about them and uh, with the freedom that you have because they're not coming back.
0: But you know, the, the same thing that I find frightening about Robin Cook's medical thrillers is I, what I find frightening about the Andromeda strain, Jurassic Park. Could this happen?
1: Well, something like it could happen. I mean, I, I don't think that we're going to have dinosaurs anytime soon, although, um, you know, the whole history of, of biotechnology has gone a lot faster than people imagine. Molecular biology has gone faster. But <clears throat> I don't worry about it in in, in a literal sense.
0: But, but the biotechnology community is much as you describe it in the book, isn't it? Isn't it far more interested in money and, and uh, what we can do with these things that's fun uh, than perhaps it should be?
1: Yes, I think so. I th- well, I think it, I think no human activity is um, good without monitoring. I mean, it, you know, unless you're the kind of person who believes that school children will study without exams... Um, unless you're the kind of person who believes that, that Wall Street does need to be looked after and that the savings and loan disaster is just a kind of accident. Um, biotechnology is a very powerful new technology. It's widespread, it's going on around the world, and somebody needs to be looking at it. I mean, somebody needs to be paying attention to it and bringing to light what it's doing. And at the moment, it's kind of free. I mean, in, in the in every sense of the word, it's no one's even noticing. What do you call a book like this? Is it science fiction?
0: Is it a techno thriller? It, what, what what would you call it?
1: I call it a, a, a. It's certainly a thriller. I mean, it's certainly meant to be. Um, my effort or one of my efforts has been to make it compelling to read um and I, and it's on a technical subject so i guess a techno thriller is okay but it but a techno thriller to me implies a sort of hardware book and this is this is clearly not so much hardware i mean how can dinosaurs be hardware the um and i and i think it's also true that i'm very interested in sort of hmm, what philosophical uh, questions and and i use um the fast pace of the story to to carry lots of things along that might not otherwise appear in a book like this.
0: How do you keep from from weighing the story down with that kind of message? I mean, when you when you when you have somebody in here like Malcolm who wants to tell us what's really going on mm-hmm. and try to put it into perspective from his point of view, how do you keep that from weighing down the pace of the story?
1: Well, I think it's it's trial and error. You know, I mean, I, you you write it and then you see how much. I mean if there are things you want to get in a book you see how much um it will bear before the before the branch breaks and uh I don't know any other way to, to do it. I mean it was my intent that the that the story have this other quality and um and I'm also aware that I think people enjoy uh so one of the things that people enjoy about my books is that there's there's often something to learn. So um, in this book, I really included a kind of primer on chaos theory, but in part because I had a lot of friends who said, you know, I'm very interested in chaos theory and I can't figure it out at all. It's so complicated. And I thought, well, I can help you out. I'll put, I'll put it in a book in easy to understand form.
0: I uh, I have to confess I learned more about it and understood it more clearly after reading this book than after reading James Glick's book and after interviewing James Glick. <laughs> so it is it's an extremely complex theory but there again now when you've when your head is filled with knowledge when you're in a specialized field and you want to put this knowledge into a novel a story it's got to move quickly it's got to have a pace mm-hmm. there again you have to you have to know where that balance is you have to know how just enough information to put in, but not too much, so it weighs down the story or bogs us down as we try to figure out what this word means.
1: I think it's it's a kind of instinct. I mean, it's um, to me, it's 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 just experiential, and I and I think I have a, um, a sort of feeling, you know, as I go along. I, I'm sure that all writers are are like this, in that that the first reader that they're working for is themselves, and so I, in in writing, will have a certain sense of, oh, okay, I'm tired of this, this is enough of this, or this character has gone on long enough, and so I'll stop it, but, um, and that may or may not be the point where the character stops in later drafts, I mean, one of the things that has to happen when you're giving a, a technical explanation in non-technical terms is that I find there's a tremendous need to rewrite for clarification, that you just do it again and again to get it right. After this short break,
2: Michael Crichton speculates on what the movie version of Jurassic Park is going to be like. Now back to my 1990 conversation with author
0: Michael Crichton. I'm wondering if you have the same emotion as you're writing, as we do when we're reading. You know, we, we appreciate the technical, and we, we're, we're fascinated by all that. But what we really want is for the bad guy to get it, get one of the dinosaurs to get him in its jaws, and just crunch him to pieces. When you're writing, can you not wait to get to that part?
1: Well, it depends. Now, some characters I'm very eager to get killed off, and I and I enjoy their deaths a lot, you know. Um, and and from time to time, you'll kill somebody, and then you'll read it later, and you think, no, nah, it wasn't bad enough, and you go back and give them a worse death, you know, stretch it out a little bit. But I, you know, I don't think I'm by nature sadistic, uh, um, so that I have a certain amount of discomfort about this, but there's pleasure. I mean, yes, absolutely. And in a a book like this, people get munched. I mean, that's part of the fun of it. And, um, and I certainly enjoyed doing it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, what, what good would a dinosaur book be unless somebody got munched, right?
1: Absolutely. I
0: mean, (laughs) they're eaters. (laughs) I have to confess to a little bit. I, I, I experienced a little bit of discomfort when you introduced the children. I thought, I'm not Sure that as a reader, that I wanted to see children put in an ap- in a in a story where I knew somebody was going to get crunched because mm. I wasn't sure what
1: you were going to do with the kids. Mm-hmm. Um, did you have misgivings about that? Mm-mm, no, not at all. The, the um, well, they're there for a couple of reasons. There's a sort of um, I think an, an obligation in the sense that our ideas about dinosaurs are all formed in childhood. I mean, you know um wh- wh- what we think about them is is really um, relates back to to early memories I mean uh, most kids their first trip to a museum their first exposure to science it's all dinosaurs and I ha- wanted to have the two kids have different views so one of the kids is interested and in, is sort of an enthusiast and the other one doesn't like it at all um so that was one one thing and the other, the other reason which is a sort of metaphorical reason is that I think it's important to um to the extent that Jurassic Park is, is is a parable about the real world, it's important to say you know, that we are making a world for our children. And if you don't want to see kids in Jurassic Park, how do you feel about your own kids in this world that we're making now? Because that's what we're talking about, ultimately. I, th-
0: I think one of the things I liked about the Andromeda strain, one of the things I like about Jurassic Park, is that... that tiny little thread at the end that isn't quite woven back into the fabric and nice, neatly sewn up. You're wondering, well, what does happen next?
1: Hmm.
0: How will they deal with that next? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think that's true to life.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's that's true. I I,
0: I, I have to ask novelists this, because so many of them come in here and they commiserate about how miserable it is to be a writer and how they hate it. Is it as much fun to write a book like this as it is to read it?
1: Um, the, the one word answer on this is no. Uh, this was a very, very difficult book to write. And um, and I'm surprised that... that um, I'm pleased that people find it fun to read, but I, I, I was surprised when the first person that mentioned it said to me, boy, you must have just had a ball writing this. It was... it was. Some books are easy and some books are hard. This one was hard for me. Hmm. And I'm not sure why. You know, I mean... I. I I have um, uh, lots of different experiences in working, and sometimes the book just kind of pops out. You know, It's an easy delivery. It's, a, it's fairly complete. It doesn't have to go through a lot of changes and revisions, and sometimes it's a protracted labor and, and it's agony all the way, and that's what this one was.
0: I also talk to a lot of novelists who who fret endlessly about what Hollywood's going to do with their with their book when Hollywood gets its hands on it now your book's already been sold as I I understand it it's going to be Spielberg's going to be starting production next year on this do you have misgivings
1: do you wonder what's going to happen to it no I mean um, I think there there are uh, I've you know done enough of this that I've had I mean I've certainly been in um, seen film versions of my books and I've had to leave to try not to throw up Um, so I know what those feelings are like Basically, it seems to me that um, you know um, the author's complaints about what Hollywood do- does are, are um, self-serving. I mean, if you don't want to sell the book, you don't have to, and um, and if you do sell the book, something will happen to it in, tr- in terms of its transformation. I'm writing the screenplay now, and it's quite startling. What has to happen? In essence, 90% of the book must go. <laughs> you know, and and that's a kind of a funny problem when you think of it. I mean, you think 50% okay, I, there's some fat, there's some things that can go. And to, to reduce the story to a, a bare fraction of its original structure is a big problem. And then the second problem is a realistic... Um, problem for for films about a book like this. How are they going to make the dinosaurs? They have lots of technical issues. The animal can't do this, and uh, you can't show that, and it's too expensive to do this, and the screenplay has to accommodate that.
0: See, that's where I appreciated the descriptions that you gave in here of the dinosaurs as being faster and more agile than we've been accustomed to seeing in these, you know, claymation-like movies right. of the past that's our image of dinosaurs when we see the moving it's just very jerky disjointed kind of uh you know yes and and they'll throw their head back and open their mouth and two seconds later the roar comes out after it's been yes. translated from the japanese yes, right. exactly. <laughs> <You know? laughs> but it's i i'm really gonna be curious to see how how they how they
1: make nimble quick dinosaurs yes I am too, uh, I, but they certainly understand that's the that's the goal, and they certainly, and particularly, I'm surprised that they're going to make so many of the animals full size. They're talking about you know a full scale, mechanical, two story high Tyrannosaurus <laughs> rex that can move, that can go sixty miles an hour. Now, um, and they can do really <laughs> quick head movements. Stephen is very insistent that the animal be quick and have bird like movements. It's going to be fantastic if they can do it. and uh, (laughs) It's going to be
0: something to see. It'll be something to see. Wow. You must be very proud.
1: I'm excited. Yeah.
2: Michael Crichton died in 2008. He was 66 years old. And you can find easy Amazon links to Michael Crichton's books at our website, heardeverything.com. Oh, and while you're there, be sure and listen to my 2013 interview with another author whose book made a little bit of success. The author of The Exorcist, William Peter Blatty.
1: It's as if I had landed on the planet with the manuscript of, of The Exorcist under my arm. It wiped out my entire previous history. Comedy? <laughs> Blatty? Ah.
2: And my interview with another mega best-selling author,
0: James Patterson. I am doing a dance with the reader, and, and, and we're all we're all in it together. They want to have a good time. I want them to have a good time. On my tombstone, I want it to be, Jim kept a lot of people up late at night.
2: And of course, we post new episodes here every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And you can find Now I've Heard Everything on all major podcast platforms. And thanks for listening. Next time on Now I've Heard Everything, an interview that will literally make you hungry for more. My 1991 conversation with chef, restaurateur, TV celebrity,
1: Wolfgang Puck. The best thing about making up a good dish is... You get immediate recognition. People tell you, God, this is so wonderful. If you build a house, you have to wait two years. They're going to walk in. And then I said, yeah, it's wonderful, but the roof leaks.
2: That's next time on Now I've Heard Everything. I'm Bill Thompson.